Well, welcome to our next edition of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. This is Chris Clements. And we are very happy today to have Lori Roberts, columnist for the Arizona Republic, and someone who's written a little bit about me. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> I went back yesterday and I think... Did, did well, she give know. you the, the nomenclature? She, she gave you the king, okay. prince? Or, no, maestro. Well, maestro. A maestro. Yeah, maestro. I, I had not heard that. I had not heard maestro of dark money. Well, dark money maestro, it has a lot of alliteration. It sounds good. But I think for the purposes of today, if he's the prince of dark money, then I get to be the queen of lightness, right? Yeah. <laughs> Take it on. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, this, this episode is probably going to surprise people because uh, as anyone who watches Arizona politics would attest, uh, Lori and I have been on the opposite side of almost all issues. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not all issues, um, but I'm sure we can agree on something. It's a gift. What can I say? <laughs> right. But our tag is agree on something. Yeah. And that's, you know, we want to have, we want to elevate the discussion and have folks in here who, um, we might not agree on everything, but we can agree on something. something. We'll find something. Yeah. Um, I have a fond memory of Lori. This must have been the 2006 cycle um, when J.D. Hayworth uh-huh. ran and lost to Harry Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And we were standing next to each other on election night, and you were quizzing me about certain things, and and I I think I you were like, is he going to win? You know, because it was not known on election night because it was so close. And I think I said that I didn't think that Hayworth was going to win, and you seemed very surprised to hear me say that. Uh, well, I guess times being what they were, this was the uh, representative for the Scottsdale-Tempe area and pretty much a Republican area. you gotta, you got to work pretty hard to lose that if you're a Republican. And uh, indeed he did. Yeah, yeah. He did. He lost. And then uh, that opened the door for Schweikert to, to beat Harry Mitchell in 2010. Yeah. So. And we like Harry Mitchell. Do we? Uh, I did. So I, I, I mean, with, I, I, he's a fine. You know, in my former life, I've dealt with everybody, and I, I, I enjoy most of our delegation. Or, or, I mean, even Raul Grijalva and I had a really great working relationship. But the tenor of some of them has really changed. Yeah, you must that's true. admit that. It's, not, it's definitely not the tenor of the 90s. And this is not the, the years of John Shattuck. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I... My only See, that we can agree on. <laughs> we found something already. But absolutely, um, we can agree on. The, Shattuck was... My but. history with Harry Mitchell was, um, my at the time, my son, who was... Oh, my gosh, he's now way older. But he was a, he, he was reading, going into kindergarten. Goes, goes to kindergarten. And uh, at Christmas break, I sit down, and he actually... His reading had regressed. And this was at the advent of all day K. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's getting worse because he's not having time with his mom one-on-one, um, usually in the early afternoon when yeah. the other kids would be napping. So I called the school and said, um, can I have him half day? And they're like, that's not an option. And I was like, what do you mean it's not an option? Like, well, we don't have that option. And I'm like, that's crazy. So I called the district and, the whole story, I actually, so I decided I was going to run a bill that said, if you have all day K, you have to have a half day option for parents who want that. And the only person who, when I went down to testify, which I'd never done before, I mean, I'm a political operative, but I'd never testified at the legislature. Um, and uh, Harry Mitchell was the one who was really against it and oh. pushed back on me. And against having half day K if parents wanted it? Yep. Wow. I mean, it was a, think it's a teacher union thing, so he was just, you know, going with his constituency. Anyway, so I'm sure he's a fine man, but we were on opposite sides. That was a long time ago. Back when Mark Mark Anderson was the sponsor of that bill. You'll remember Oh yeah. Mark Anderson. Long time so, ago. Yeah. So speaking of long time ago, so we've Lori and I have known each other for a while, casually. Um but uh you've written a number of things opposed to stuff I've done and um I, I guess I'll start with where, what, what is your, like, philosophically, what's your opposition to dark money? 
My opposition is pretty well can be boiled down to one thought, and this is post-Citizen United, where we found out that corporations are people, and they have the right to spend an unlimited amount of money, however much they want to, on an independent campaign for political purposes. And I'm fine with that, that the Supreme Court has decreed it. It says they can do it. It doesn't say they can hide. And I think that when a corporation or or a person, really, um, can dump copious amounts of money into a campaign and dominate the conversation and dominate the airwaves, uh, they have the right to do that. But I, as the consumer, as the voter, need to have the information as to who they are so that I can evaluate the message. Do I believe them? Do they have an ax to grind? Let's, let's look at, you know, what is the poster child for the whole dark money thing, and that's Arizona Public Service. In 2013-2014, uh, unbeknownst to us, it was APS, but a, a pair of dark money groups put, mm, let me think, $10.4 million into a campaign to elect a pair of corporation commissioners. Corporation commission, of course, being the regulatory body that sets our electricity rates and, and other things like that. Um, so we didn't know who they were. One of the groups was called Save Our Future Now. So all of a sudden we're getting all this information from Save Our Future or Save Our Future Now saying, oh, you got to vote for these guys because these guys are going to be great for you. Well, uh, I want to save our future now and in the future. So, so how do I evaluate that message? It became pretty quick, pretty evident pretty quickly that it was somebody who had a dog in that fight because nobody puts $10 million into a corporation commission race. Right. These are usually clean elections races that are nominal at best, and most people basically just vote party line depending on where they stand. Sadly, we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, it wasn't until five years later that we actually got confirmation that Save Our Future Now and the other group were actually being funded by Arizona Public Service. Now you ask the question, why would Arizona Public Service want to put $10.5 million or $10.4 million into a campaign secretly? Well, the reason probably is that is because they're basically choosing their own regulators. And no, no surprise, those same regulators were, uh, were very quick to raise APS's rates your rates, my rates, if you happen to be an APS uh, uh, customer, with virtually no discussion. And the reason that they did it is because they were in APS's pockets. As a voter, I believe that I had and you had the right to know who was sending that, me that message to say, elect those two people. Because had we known that, maybe we would have voted differently. Maybe we would have said, oh, no, we love APS. We want to vote for those guys. But we should have known it. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't disagree. All right, with, so we're done then. Here. <laughs> with with where your head is on that, and the in the regard now, and I look at this specifically because in this case you have a you have a regulated monopoly, um, and you have its regulators, um, which you could make an argument about whether they should be elected or or appointed, um, and. It's you know you're right. It, it's clearly, there's no one else that would have any kind of that level of self-interest um, in who the commissioners were, um, and it's similar. In, in, so in that case, you know, it's like okay. So should we say if you're a regulated monopoly that's governed by this commission um, that sets your rates? You know, I could see an argument that says you shouldn't be participating in electioneering or you're paying you know, well, whether I, it's dark money or contributions or whatever I because I mean it's similar to like um, the SEC doesn't allow hedge funds to uh, get involved in governor's races um, because of the bond uh, investments sure. in different states so I think in, you use it as that as the poster child and I say yeah that's kind of the exception um, in the sense of that's a that's a pretty unique situation. I don't know that. Well, let me that... give you another example. Um, not not as specific, but in um, last year's election, yeah, Democrats on the federal level far outspent Republicans. They figured out what Republicans were doing back when you were doing it, and and they've exceeded exceeded what you were doing. They spent, I believe, about a billion dollars in dark money campaigns to get Joe Biden elected to get. 
Mark Kelly elected and to get a whole host of people on the federal level mm-hmm. elected. Now, let's just one of the, and the way they do that, of course, is dark money is means equals attack ads because nobody wants to put their name on an attack ad and nobody wants to be held responsible or accountable for what they say in an account attack ad. So those are dark money ads always. So one of the people who was brutally beat up in dark money ads was Senator Martha McSally um, on ads that were taken out not by Mark Kelly, but by independent uh, dark money groups who had, you know, mom, mother and apple pie kind mm-hmm. of names. And they spent big, big money to attack her. So we heard what a horrible person she is. We heard in every different way how she's in Trump's pocket, which, you know, frankly, by the way, she was. But <laughs> but the point is, we she, don't know who gave that money. Would that. it not have helped you as a voter evaluate the messages you were hearing and the attacks you were hearing on Martha McSally had you known that, for example, perhaps some of the money came from George Soros, uh, boogeyman extraordinaire on the Republican side. People had a right to know who was telling them that she was bad. And without knowing who the major contributors are, I just don't see how they can evaluate the message or what or what the messenger um, may have to gain or lose by that person being elected. Yeah, I so I view it as um, I think people well, two things. One, if you hear a message, I don't think the first thing you think of is who is saying that it is. Is that true? And then if you care, you'll do some research on it. You know, how can you how can you evaluate it's truthfulness if you don't know who's doing the talking, if they're talking from behind a bush. I mean, it's... It, it, your average it, reader or your average viewer, your average listener, your average voter is not going to go out and do a bunch of research. Well, that's, I mean, that's my point is that if it is, it is, if it is something that's going to affect them and they question whether it's true or not, if they care, and so that's going to be a very small number, are going to go, you know, ch- test the efficacy of that. Um, but why can't we help out the rest of them who need that information? Whether it's pro or it's con, whether it convinces them to vote for the person or not to vote for the person, it's information that they should have. And I don't understand why you're scared of giving it to them. So the it, it's not that I fear it. It's it's what and this is especially this has only gotten worse as the tenor of our politics has gotten worse. Um, anonymity. Uh, in my mind, is something that is, I think, important because of you should not be attacked for being a participant in the political process from the standpoint of, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, The guy who was the CEO of Mozilla Mm -hmm. gave $1,000 to uh, Prop 8, which was the campaign for marriage, uh, to define marriage between a man and a woman sure. in California back in 2006, yeah. 2008, 2008. Um, once that $1,000 contribution was disclosed, somebody picked up on it, and they just mercil- mercilessly attacked him. And it actually, was the, the heat on that was so high that he actually had to be, resign his job as sure. the head of Mozilla. You know, top CEO, over a thousand dollar contribution, just because you know the mob didn't like it. Um, a more recent example uh, is there is a uh, a woman who runs a website and a blog uh, and a business that helps parents with help getting their kids sleep trained. Um, and you know, she has a thriving business that has helped thousands and thousands of parents, including me. Um, her husband was a donor, gave, let's say it's $2,000 to, to Trump. And she that came out, and she was mercilessly attacked. And people tried to ruin her business by taking her material and posting it out for free for people. Um, that's, that's the kind, I mean, so you say... People have a right to know who's doing the talking. I think people care more about what the message is than who's giving the message. And I also don't think it's fair to tell someone you can't be in the political process, you can't use your voice 
unless you tell us who you are so that we can attack you if we don't like it. Well, we live in politically perilous times, and, and the mob is a huge, huge problem. But I would also suggest that for the people who are attacked, they should, if they're being threatened, if someone's violating the law, they should pursue that in, in a court. But I, but I do understand your, your larger point, which is the bit players in these things uh, should not be held up to this degree of ridicule that we have in the community. I don't know that I would want to frame an entire campaign finance system around what I think is a problem that can maybe be dealt with, with other, in other ways and perhaps by society becoming sane again. But um, I would say that the donors that I'm talking about are not the $1,000 donors or the $500 donors. If you look at the new, latest initiative that's been proposed by Terry Groddard and his group, the Outlaw Dirty Money People, they have a new name for it this year. But if I'm you look sure you'll be attacked as, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. But, but if you look at that, they're, they're after bigger dollar donors, the ones who can flood the airwaves where, where perhaps nobody else can even be heard. I don't think they're after the little old lady who gives money to the Sierra Club. But, I mean, your, your point is taken. We are living in a terrible time. Believe me, I'm out there with opinions all the time. You should read my well, email. Well, I, I can't but, imagine the amount, the, the amount of tax that you, you get because, I mean, you have, one, you've got strong opinions, um, and they're to the left of, of at least half of the state and maybe half your readership. Um, but you do a very good job. I mean, you're very articulate in your, and well-written, well-reasoned uh things, which is, I think, part of why well, if you get attacked, it's it's in part because people, all they can say is call you names because they don't have a good counter argument. Yeah, I, but I mean, I, I am troubled by that issue and what happened to the Firefox guy and those others. I just don't know that I believe that that's a reason not to require disclosure. And, and maybe, maybe the answer is you make it at a higher level, though in those cases, those those were not dark money groups. Those are just contributions to political candidates, as I understand right. it, which for time immemorial have been have been um, disclosed. I, I think that your concern has more to do with social media and just the times in which we live. So do we change our laws to uh, put everybody in the dark because this happens to a couple of people on these, these high high volume, high, highly emotional issues. I, I, I don't have an answer there. Mm -hmm. But I do know that conceptually and importantly, one of the things that voters ought to have is the right to know who's talking to them. Well, what, you bring up, you bring up another, both of you, I'm, I'm sitting back, I'm enjoying this. Um, I, I think the overall point is that, that our politics have gotten so vitriolic. Hmm. To where you know, even the large donors, the small donors, nobody wants to be a target of the woke mob right now, whether you're left or right or, or indifferent. And in your perspective, you've been you know share with us a little bit. You've been at this a long time, and this might be a larger question. But how did we get here? From your perspective, how did we get to the point where? Like we're having a conversation, and 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 we referenced earlier before we started recording about you know the times of John Shattuck or John Kyle or whomever, and and we could sit down and have a conversation about the issues that affect the state and actually come to some sort of consensus conclusion and move forward. But even in our own state, we the delegation well, can't do that. You know what I'm the saying? The delegation is is a symptom of the larger problem yeah. right now, in my opinion. But sure. I you know I we're at a time when you have a lot of people, especially in the middle class, who are feeling left behind. Sure. And and I think that's Donald Trump spoke to them in a way that Democrats haven't. They they had become somewhat elite. They have now become so woke, which is an also an important thing because that's a whole other group of people that's been left behind. But you have a lot of people who have grievances and you combine that with the fact that they've got the power of social media now, whereas in two decades ago, they could have called me up and I'd say, yeah, 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 and maybe I would have written a story and maybe not. Now, as soon as you say something that's objectionable to me, as soon as you're 
you're the vice president and, and you go on Lester Holt's NBC show and you fumble an answer. You got the governor of the state of Arizona down on you, writing things online for, about how you need record, to resign. For the record, he was down on her much farther. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> much but, but, but I think when she. But was, my point is, is that everybody's got a microphone now, yeah. and a lot of people are willing to use it. And there is this mob mentality on the left, and there is this mob mentality on the right. Sure. And the thing that really concerns me that I see increasingly is that now the two mobs aren't speaking to each other anymore. And so instead of having one place where we can go online and ha have a conversation with each other in a respectful fashion. <laughs> um, you've got the right wing that's got their own media now and even their own social media, and you've got the left wing that's got theirs, and neither the two shall ever meet. And and so you don't get... You've got two echo chambers right. going. I mean, my uh, writing buddy, Eddie Montini, and I used to talk about what happened when social media came along. And in the old days when we were columnists and we would write something, somebody might write into the paper a letter to the editor and it would be, you know, I don't like what that Montini said and blah, 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 blah. Um, and it was, but it was sort of like being in church because it was usually respectful and, you know, maybe, maybe there was some disdain there, but it wasn't too over the top. So that was like being in church. Well, now with social media, it's more like we're in the bar and it's midnight. We've had too much and I'm going to take a bottle and I'm going to bam it over your head because I'm going to just take it out on you. And that's where we are in society right now because everybody seems to feel disenfranchised for a different reason. And everybody has a grievance and it's all your fault. And it's my hat's white and your hat's black. And, and I, you know, I, I see that as well. I even see that as a problem with the president now. I thought that he ran as a unifier, as a guy who was going to bring the center right to the center left people together, which is, I believe, most of the country. And instead, he's decided to unify the Republic, the Democratic Party, which, of course, infuriates the Republicans. But again, my point is, is that I think there is room in the middle for compromise, and it's not something we ever want to talk about. Instead, it's I'm right and you're a jerk. Right. Yeah. What, what, how do we get out of this? I mean, I, cause it, this is not, I, I can't imagine that this is sustainable, this, this level of strife, um, and, and how dysfunctional it's creating our politics. Um, is there a way out? Do you, will something have to break? Well, I'll tell you what I would like to see happen. I, I think that you have, you know, building on what I just said, because we have, such heavily gerrymandered political districts, the people that get elected are generally the people that come from the farther to the left or farther to the right, depending on which district it is. And so you get to the general election when you throw in the independents, who are a third of our electorate, and you've got two choices that are pretty far to the left or pretty far to the right from a center perspective. I really, if, if you assume that we can't get rid of the gerrymandered districts, which I've pretty much given up on. I started working on that in the year 2000, thinking that the Citizens Redistricting Commission was the answer, and it wasn't. Um, I wonder if we couldn't morph to some sort of a top two primary, essentially electing our state and federal leaders much like we do our municipal leaders, which is where you have one free-for-all election and the top two go on. And so maybe there are two Democrats that go on, and those are your two choices. Or maybe there are two Republicans that go on, and they're your two choices. Or maybe it's one of each, or maybe it's an independent. But it forces those people to the middle because you've got to appeal to the larger electorate. I mean, it's the reason that Martha McSally couldn't get elected, because she never tried to establish a more center position. And so she was rejected twice. Right. What I'd ha I guess I'd have to look and see what what has happened in California as a result of top two. Um, yeah. If their legislature is that. more united. The problem is that it's so democratic. Like, I think they've got a super majority. It'd be hard yeah. to do that analysis, right? Right. I, yeah. And I, I don't know, because I know that there are concerns that people will say, oh, then I end up with two Democrats to deal with. Well, maybe you do, but one of them, I'll guarantee you, will be better than the other. And that's the person who probably wouldn't have made it through the primary to begin with, from, I mean, better than the right. other from a center perspective. Right. But I think, don't forget that we're a state that has a third Republicans, a little over, third Democrats, a little under, and a third independents. And those independents are largely shut out. 
So I, I think that if we figured out a way in our, to restructure our politics, why is it that if fully a third of the voters in this state, and in many states, I would assume, are independents, why is it that we're subsidizing partisan primaries that essentially shut out those people? Yeah. That's, I remember there was a, um, there was a move, there was a ballot initiative, I think, a while back that was to, to create open mm -hmm. primaries. And... I think the compromise, I, I don't know whether it never got to the ballot or if we defeated it. Did. it. I think dark money killed it. Did it? Dark yep. money, that was before my, well, that was before and, I was and, Well, and in, and in that case, both parties are against it, which probably yeah, makes yeah. it a pretty good idea. And and I think what ended up happening is the legislature referred or something happened where we we allowed independents to decide which primary they wanted to vote in. But a lot of them that I talked to, either they're independent because they're sort of apathetic or they're independent because they're truly independent, and they don't want to ask for a Republican ballot or a Democratic ballot because they may want to vote for one Republican guy and one Democratic woman, right. and they can't do that. Plus, they have to each year, if you're on the early voting list, what used to be called the permanent, was the people, now it's the evil. Evil. <laughs> um, if you're on that list as an independent, each each election cycle, you have to actually contact the Secretary of State or the county recorder's office right. and request, tell them which ballot you want, whereas a Republican or a Democrat is just going to automatically get their ballot. So I think that the turnout levels are quite low, um, and I think they could go up and we, if we just simply included them more. That's to say nothing of how difficult it is for an independent to even run because well, they have to get yeah. so many signatures to get on that general ballot for right. November. right. It is a, a uh... but well, I guess I'm saying is, is that I think our system from redistricting to the way we elect in partisan primaries is set up for the extremes, and most of us aren't those people, and yet they run. I think they run at least three of our four Republican legis or congressional districts, and I don't think that they're that representative of uh, their entire electorate. They're representative of the portion of their electorate that. Votes that got them through the primary. in those primaries, right? Um, what What's your take on? Well, let's let's unpack things. Obviously, I'm I believe that Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. I'll just say that. You I'm know, there, it's amazing <laughs> how many Republicans won't say that. It and and you know, if we everyone who's focused on Maricopa County and this audit and you know, blah blah blah, and the the and I've said this like, probably before on the podcast, what I always point to is, okay, so Joe Biden won Maricopa County by 20,000 votes. He won, he won statewide by 11,000. Wins Maricopa County by 20,000 votes. So if Maricopa County was the place where it was stolen, that means there had to be at least 20,000 votes that were stolen. Adrian Fontes, the county recorder at the time of the election, a Democrat, lost his recordership by four forty five hundred votes. Yeah. So you're telling me he stole twenty thousand for Biden but didn't steal four forty five hundred for Not himself. a very smart man. <laughs> well Not and, a very and, smart and we talked about the really the hottest race in Maricopa County, which was the county attorney. Yeah. And she won. Yeah. Yeah the Republicans the won. Republican and won. she was she was behind. So that that if you're gonna steal votes, that would be the where where you go to the George Soros issue. Yeah, it, you know. it just is so absurd. So, but I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question here. How do you think all of this plays out for Republicans in 2022, as as they continue to be this faction of the party since, tends to be so focused on this 2020 election, and most people in the state, 55 percent, I think the high ground poll said, find this to be ridiculous and want to sort of move on. And many of them are saying, I'm not voting for somebody. I'm going to be less likely to vote for that person if they supported this audit. How does this play out in a year when you're trying to regain a Senate seat so, and a, hold on to a governor's chair and hold on to the legislature, which you have a one-vote right. margin in each chamber? I, I, I'll start by saying it's problematic, um, but I'll caveat that by saying uh, I think – of swing voters who will make a difference in the elections in 2022, none of them even know about this. They're just not paying attention. They're they're not actively they they don't read the newspaper. They don't watch the news. You know, Stephen Shattuck. Uh, but they don't even vote in midterms usually. Well, I'm, you're, so there. Are, 
I'm talking about two different sets of people. Those are two different sets of people. There's the, the less likely voters, and then there's what Stephen Shadig called the indifferent voters. They're the ones who don't pay attention until right at the end. And yeah, the last two weeks of the election. Yeah, or even yeah. the last few days. They, they can swing it's it one like, way or the other. And, and you know, you have a close race. Those are the people who are going to make the difference, the people who are paying the least amount of attention. So as, as much of a clown show as the audit has become, it, it, sure, it's going to motivate the Democrats to use it against Republicans, and that's probably not going to help Republicans. But I don't think I don't view it as something that's going to be catastrophic for the party uh, as as candidates across the board. Um, what I think about to legislative candidates? Probably and, some and gubernatorial. Candidates. It will be an issue there simply because Katie Hobbs is in the race. Yeah, um, the I I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I mean, obviously Katie Hobbs is going to is is leading with that. You know, she's like, I'm the adult, and, and she's going to have a strong message in that regard. And the, the Well, she's now a household name. Nobody knew who Katie Hobbs was before this. Now you can't turn on the cable TV without seeing her. Right. Yeah. So um, I, she should probably yeah, write a thank issue. you note to Karen Fan, <laughs> yeah, Senate president. Sure, right. <laughs> on this issue, she's definitely in the driver's seat in terms of exploiting it. Yeah. No yeah, doubt yeah. about it. You know, how much the this... It, this election is nationalized through the actions of, of Joe Biden and, and what's going on in Washington will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see after the summer of discontent. Well, this could, this could I be think it what, everything. This what, could be 2010 all over again. Yeah, if he pivots. Um, I don't think he will, but uh, th this next month is not going to be helpful to him uh, legislatively. And it, it, we, we just saw, we just had the, this discussion before you came about Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, and and the middle basically sitting back saying, okay, it's, you guys do what you want to do. Come but. increasingly clear. If you assume he's not going to get anything done next year and... He, he's going to try to give his people something to go with. And, and, and well, I don't think he's going to get much because if he can't get beyond the filibuster, I just don't see the votes and, and I see the Republicans are going to line up against anything he tries to do as as vice versa when Trump was in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Democrats did the same thing. There aren't any yeah. angels here. No, no. And and what was uh, Byron York had a great article the other day in his, his daily memo. There, the Democrats used the filibuster over 300 times over the last, in like in, in one year. It, so it has become just, a problem, though. I mean, I, I support the concept of a filibuster because I think for the same reason we've been talking, it's important to get something that has a broader support than just being rammed through by one side or the other and then four years later when they're out being rammed back yeah, out. I, I agree. But but I do think that it's problematic when you just have a minority who can just sit back and say no to everything. They ought to have to have some skin in the game. I don't know if we ought to go back to a Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing or, or, or say, uh, you're talking about a real standing. Where, they like, where you really where have, you have, to have to stand there and do something other than just sit back and go, eh, no, we're not going to allow that because yeah. that's really easy. But, I mean, I, I look at this issue and, and wonder, here's Kirsten Cinema, somebody who's had no power. She's been slaving away in Congress for years, has had no power. Now she's got a lot of power, she and Manchin, and they're refusing to use it. It seems to me that if you really are that person who says, I want to get things done for Arizona and I want to be bipartisan, then you ought to recognize at the moment there's nothing bipartisan going on and do what you can to force people to the table. And it seems to me situationally, if you could say, if they won't negotiate something on this, then I'm going to vote to suspend the filibuster for this particular issue, which would force them to come to the table and compromise or or they get something worse. But pretty much she's just saying, oh, nope, I, nope, nope. And I wonder at some point, is is that just an excuse to not have to take a vote on anything controversial? Well, I mean, that that's a possibility. I think that... Um, oh, I think, I think Kirsten is very smart. And I think she's doing... She's. I think she knows exactly the power that she has. And I think she knows... And I think she knows where she comes from. But she's not and, exercising any power. Well... She's just allowing the Demo the Republicans to say no, no, no. Well, I, I think. Well, I mean, no, no, no on on bills that that you know we can we can argue would be detrimental to the country. Or so, you could say there if the, if you assume that there is some 
germ of a good idea in those bills that something needs to be done on immigration, on on voting rights, on whatever the issue is. If you think there's something good there, which if she does can, on the voting rights thing, force them to the table to see if they can come to a more reasonable conclusion. If you can parse out the pieces of the bill that can get passed with bipartisan majorities, that would be something. But she's not trying to where to what I see because the only way that you're going to get Republicans to even come to the table and consider it is to say, you know, I might I might let the filibuster go on this, and likewise to say to the Democrats, I'm going to stand with the Republicans if you won't come off of some of this stuff. The, the question is whether the, you, you can be selective to that extent with yeah. the filibuster, or well, once, it's a rule, once you why blow it you? up, once you blow it up, is it blown up forever? Like I don't it was know. With if the it's judges. a rule, why can't you do it selectively? I don't know. That's that's a nuance of Senate arcane rules. I was never a Senate mouse. I was a House mouse, not a Senate guy. So, well, yeah, it's a it's a tough thing. But here we sit, year after year. I mean, how many years is it going to be before we can solve the immigration issue? How many years? How that's long a great we been question because it? I I you know you worked this, on it. I what, worked on twenty it. years ago. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it blew up pretty bad in two thousand six. Um, that was well. That's a that's a whole other podcast, right? Oh my gosh, that's a serious. But but, podcast. but to your point, no one has the courage to run a singular bill on on immigration issues that probably everyone will agree on. So we have we have something here in the state of Arizona called E Verify. If E Verify was nationally implemented, mm-hmm. that would probably you probably get the votes for that. But it's so because of the vitriol, because of the different interests. You can't even get a singular bill on even well, verify. Well, the problem is that the border hawks won't do anything to deal with DACA or a path to citizenship. Um, but if you could just start there, because in, you know, because you have to secure the thing. border first. But they won't for the same yeah. reason that the dreamers still are dreaming. Yeah. yeah. Because because nobody wants to let their leverage go. Yeah. It's. It's uh, no, I, disappointing, we disconcerting. Agree. Yeah. We there agree. You go. There you go. Of course, <laughs> no, the think... devil's in the details of how you decide the issues. But I don't see any possibility of, of dealing with any of these issues until we can get a set of elected representatives who are more representative of the entire electorate as opposed to just their, the extreme members of their parties. Yeah, I think – so I, I, I agree that that's – definitely the case in um, in Congress but how do you I mean in the Senate I guess it's just a matter of well it's 50 50 there yeah. so they're pretty but, but then I guess I would argue it, it would take real leadership on the executive side which we haven't had in some time and I would say last administration this administration so you have you have the border you have an issue with, with, with border security. You have a 50-50 Senate. You have a six-vote you know, margin of error in the House. You know, Biden could have come in and said, we're not messing with border security. We're going to continue to do what Trump's been doing. It seems to be doing what worked. Oh, and then, so, because the only way I know I can get any sort of bill through on any sort of compromise is not blowing up border security. But instead, he goes totally... To your point, the opposite direction. Yeah, and because because to it be was what to appease the most progressive yeah. wing of his party, which I understand. Except but, but it's now a different message it's a from crisis. the center. Well, <laughs> they shouldn't have done anything until they had an asylum system put in place. It's yeah. crazy to just open it up. And for as much as he doesn't want to call it a crisis, and as much as they don't want to say that it's something that they had a hand in, that that they just inherited the problem, he certainly did have a hand in it because people thought, oh, we've got a kinder, gentler country with a kinder, gentler president. Let's go. And who wouldn't? I yeah. would. Wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, and that's that's been my point about it, uh, overall in immigration is that I don't for a second begrudge people who want to get here because I would absolutely do the same thing. It says something about our country. I, people I tell my kids all the time that you won the lottery. Yeah, mm-hmm. you won the world lottery. You're born in America, and you're and you're here. And and so that leads me to uh, that's a good segue to a question I wanted to ask you, Lori. Was the I, I'm you know it's obvious I'm a proud American, um, and I love this country. Uh, there are a lot of people who are are really spending a lot of time trying to convince people that this country sucks. 
um, and we have a terrible history. And you know that that you know I, I I've always just, you know believed that this is the greatest nation on earth um, because we are the the only experiment in democracy that's lasted this long. Well, I um, think we are the greatest nation on earth, but I think that your view of our history and my view of our history and and what our forefathers experienced may be a little different from what other people experienced. And so I, I is what they're saying we're a terrible country or what they're trying to do is make it us make us a better country. I view it as more they want to acknowledge the problems in our past, which we certainly had them, um, in order to build upon that and create a better future for their kids. And I think that's fair. I mean, I, my, my sons grew up with some children of color around them who were friends. And while they had great experiences, they were lucky kids, they also had parents who had a point of view that was a little different because they had to be a little more careful mm -hmm. with their kids. When they get to be 16 and they get the driver's license, they get to talk that I never dreamed of having with my children. So right. it just could be that our perspectives as as pretty privileged people um, is different than the perspective of someone who has maybe a different skin color. And I don't think that means that they, they're any more ashamed of America as as... I don't think that it means they're ashamed of America. I think they're trying to build a better America. Sure, and, and I and I absolutely would agree with with building a better. I mean, we we're the greatest nation on earth, and we need to get better. I mean, that's that we have problematic history. Um, it's I not just, just history, though. You see what's going on yesterday. There was uh, a woman in a, a Jewish family in Tucson that had a swastika spray painted I'm sure you saw the picture yep. on their door and something pretty nasty written underneath it this is in Tucson Arizona in the year 2021 <laughs> so uh, it's not just our history this stuff goes yeah, on now that's a good point it's well I mean look at Derek Chauvin I mean that's that was horrific um, and plenty of others yeah yeah not the only one just the only one that was so graphically captured thankfully um I, you know, it just. Did you guys just agree again? <laughs> I think this, we this did. Is a monumental <laughs> historical moment. So one thing I, we're, I we're was thinking about. We're going to have to like send out a press release. There, I, I will, I will guarantee you that there's going to be people who attack Lori for coming on this podcast, and there's going to be people who attack me for having Lori on the podcast. I mean, it's. That's no the, one's going to attack me. Sense. I'm friends with everybody. <laughs> I just really, really try. Oh, to probably. I get, I get, I get. I'm responsible for anything a dem Democrat ever does, and I'm not even a Democrat. <laughs> so you know, I, that's all right. It's all right. Now, if you're if you're Mr. Montini, we would. I mean, I don't think we would agree on that. Much. Yeah, yeah but he, I think that's okay too, because he would be respectful. And I think we need more conversations in this country and more opportunities to seek out middle ground, not fewer. But we have fewer for the very reason that you just talked about, because you are supposed to only have far right Republicans on, I suppose, and I'm only supposed to talk to far right Democrats, I suppose, yeah. and that's the problem used to be so. that you would read a newspaper and you well hopefully you read a newspaper hopefully you still do but probably not um, and I just read your column that's all I really Oh do. well there you go that's all you needed to know <laughs> but but you got to say the op-ed page and and hopefully there's something on there that is written from a from a a conservative perspective and maybe there's something written on there from a liberal perspective and that's good and hopefully you would read both and maybe learn something or maybe you disagree which is okay but you'd have at least been exposed to it and now you go to your the blogs that you know are reliably only going to have uber conservative writers and and someone else goes to the blogs that are only going to have the woke people writers yeah. and there's no cross pollinization at all right. and so we become an echo chamber and everybody who reads me says I'm great and everybody who who listens to you says you're great because the only people listening to you are from your perspective if i disagree with you you must be wrong right yeah what um, I'm, I'm going to retell the story. Maybe she'd she'd appreciate it. So when I was um, I was really into politics when I was a kid, and and um, back in the election of 1984, I'd hate to take you all the way back when uh, in Tucson, Jim McNulty was the the congressman, and he was defeated by Jim Colby. And my dad 
took me out to the, the both the Republican and the Democratic parties that evening. Mm-hmm. And we went to the Jim Colby party first. And I was like, oh, this is great. Fine, Jim won. And I had already met him and... and, and uh, He's barely even a Republican anymore, is he? He's been canceled out. Where the party's out, gone, and, yeah. And, uh, but, but Jim is still a dear friend. And, and then we went to the McNulty party. And as a kid, I'm like, why are we going to the McNulty party, Dad? He's, and, he, and his response was great. And he said, because Jim McNulty is a good man. And we evaluate people not by their politics, but by their hearts. Mm-hmm. I've never forgotten that. In fact, my first internship was working for Dennis DeConcini because of that sort of influence that my dad had on but, the, but you would lose and, voters now. Oh, I know. Yeah. You that. would. I mean, think back to... So I consider Kirsten Cinema a, 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 we're friendly. Well, I would consider a good friend, but we've had coffee together. We... And and we don't agree on everything, but we can be honest with one another, and that's so lacking in our discourse now. Just honesty and just being like, okay, well, that's what you think, and that's what I think, and want another cup of coffee because life's too short. Yeah, well, that's where we are. Yeah, and and and, and neither side is to blame, and both are to blame. Yeah, I'm um, really pretty much both. I think it's both for sure. It's just gotten so toxic. Um, What's the future of newspapers look like? Uh, the future of newspapers, I think, looks great if you don't consider a newspaper the printed thing that gets thrown on your driveway every morning. I think it's it's online journalism. I think it's more important than ever that there be places that people can go that are written, hopefully, from not one perspective or another, but are what, what we expect of the mainstream media. Have we been perfect? Do we need to approve? No. Do we need to improve and redouble our efforts to make sure that that we are fair and presenting things in an accurate manner? Certainly. But we are vitally important, I think, now especially when so many people masquerade as journalists. I look at, um, uh, at some of the blogs that I see. All you have to do is just have a some guy in your basement that knows how to set up a, a an internet page or whatever they have to do, and then you've got the same voice as anyone else. But not all voices are equal when it comes to where you should be getting your news. And I think that um, and I think that we are going to do a better job. Journalists of the future are going to do a better job because they're 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 gonna be it's gonna be more important to not only just provide facts but also to provide context and to say what that politician is saying is not true, and here's here's why it's not true. You don't have to take a position on it like like I would do as a commentator, right. but they need to have the ability to not just they're not just um, they're not just secretaries taking dictation and putting down what you say. They should be be providing context and they should be providing, you know, an honest look at what's being said out there. Because I think we can all agree everybody's spinning everything, and so if mm-hmm. you want to know where you can turn to for reliable information. It's got to be the mainstream media. So I think our future is bright. It's just different than it was when I came up. And someday, probably in the not-too-distant future, you're not going to have that newspaper thrown on your driveway if you're still getting it. But instead, you'll have a better product because you can go. They're now updated 24-7 all the time. When something breaks, you don't have to wait till tomorrow's newspaper to get it from our reporters. They may not always be... First, I wish they were first more often than they are. But more importantly, they get they try to get it right mm-hmm. and to get it with enough detail and depth that you've got something there. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty. I don't think I'll be around to see it, but, the, but it, it's good. It's all good. Having to wait for the next day's news. So when I ran John Shattuck's first campaign in 1994, um, I would be at the office very very late at night usually wee hours of the morning, and I would stop at the Circle K between where the campaign office was and my apartment to pick up the next day's paper on my way home because it would be 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and uh, that way I could get a, a jump on whatever issues, not that there was that many issues that <laughs> in a congressional race that there isn't a Republican was covering, but, um, but it was, you know, I just felt it was part of my thing. But now I can roll out of bed and, and, and look at my it's, phone. It's exciting, but it's also really hard because, yeah. and, and you'll see it like when you have a, 
major breaking story, say a shooting, one of those mass shootings. Everybody wants to be out there immediately. Everybody floods the airways. Half of it's wrong because nobody even knows what's going on yet, even the police. But still, everybody feels compelled to just vomit out whatever they've heard. You know, I, I heard right. from a third-hand source, and so there it is out there. And I think that um, newspapers and just maybe a lesser extent, TV stations, but certainly newspapers have learned to take a little bit of a breath and a pause before they put something out there so that you can know that when you start reading what we're writing, it'll be the right stuff. And inevitably, some things will be wrong because we'll have been told things that were wrong because the police will have assumed things that turned out to be wrong or they spun them their own way. But you can also know that we're going to come back and make sure that you know that, that that thing we told you before, that wasn't true. And here's what is true. So it's a it's an exciting time to be in journalism. I remember when, when Gabby Giffords was shot, and there was tremendous pressure, of course. It was, a, I think it was a Saturday morning, and mm-hmm. this thing had happened at a Safeway just just north of Tucson, and and nobody had information at first. And, and the information that came out was that um, Representative Giffords was dead. And some media went with that. But the responsible ones took a breath, took a pause, saying, no, we got to have another source on that. As much as we, you know, we need to put out, we want to be first, we'd rather not have somebody killed off before they really are dead. And thank God she wasn't dead. And I thought that was one of our better moments in journalism that we, that we held off. And we just got that confirmation. So I think our futures are bright because if people want the right information, if they want to know that they can go to a trusted source, that's got to be us. And clearly we're not that trusted at the moment by a fair amount of the country, so we got to earn that back. <laughs> right. And I think that's going to be a challenge. It is. Um, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, going back to your earlier point with social media being what it is, and everyone everyone is a reporter, everyone has a, a take, that creating a narrative for a uh, specific story before the facts are all known is seems to be more important than the facts shouldn't be yeah. gotta start with the it's facts all about what the narrative is i think you saw that with what happened on on january 6th i think as we've gone farther away from it um there are a lot of crazy things that happened that day but there was so much of a rush to the narrative and now the narrative has dominated you know sort of the politics and and it continues to dominate. Well, what the was about that narrative that was wrong? What I recall was wrong was people like Paul Gosar saying this was Antifa, and it clearly <laughs> wasn't. That part of the narrative was wrong. But what part are you speaking of that was wrong? So you have, um, well, even specifically, what I was thinking about um, that the narrative that it, this was like an insurrection, and that seems to have dominated the mainstream media, and it wasn't an insurrection. I would disagree with that no, narrative. They, they were breaking um, into the nation's would, capital in order to try to prevent Congress from certifying the results of the presidential election. So I don't know if the word insurrection uh, I, is right, but it certainly is troubling. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I just think that there was a, there was a definite rush in air, different areas of our, of our media to create a narrative that, has, that as we get farther along, I'm, I, I mean, you've seen it with, with COVID. There has been an, a lasting narrative around around different ways that we've we've approached the COVID pandemic, and as we get farther along, the responsible actors, what you're talking about, will, will report the facts. Right, because you learn from it for the next sure. time. But I mean, but the COVID I'm just, thing I'm was the, the, the science sort of evolved, sure. and if you'd known everything then that you know now, perhaps things would have been different. But you're right, the fundamental. First thing that a reporter ought to do is get the facts. Just get the facts. And um, but I also think it's important in getting the, and that's on like a breaking news right. sort of thing. It's also important to put those facts into perspective as quickly as you can. Sure. But of course, that's where the that's where the danger comes in. I remember hearing, uh, you know, that Ashley Babbitt was this great patriot and she'd been murdered. Well. No, she was breaking into the speaker's lobby. Now, she may be patriotic, but I don't know that that's particularly um, a heroic thing to be doing and uh, breaking in when people are telling you, don't do this. Yeah, the whole thing just is the most surreal 
bizarre. I, I, I Well, there's so I, many competing narratives there, too. So you, you have her breaking into the speaker's lobby, getting shot, unarmed. You have a guard dying two days later of having a stroke, but the narrative was that they, guard had been attacked well, that, by a... By, well, that's a, that's a perfect example because uh, early on they, the police said, as I recall, that this um, police officer had been hit over the head with, 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 a, fire with a fire extinguisher. I assume that they were quoting witnesses. And so the narrative became that he was murdered by these, by these people who hit him, you know, who directly attacked him. And it took probably months, well, yeah. maybe not months, but weeks at least, weeks at least for, yeah. to sort out what really happened, which was that, and then the thing was that he was gassed, tear gassed, and yeah. that wasn't true either. But what he did have happen to him is that, that he was involved in a lot of pushback with all of these people. And then two days later, he had a couple of strokes yeah. and died where they connected, a, you know, that's for someone else to say. But, but yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's an example. But I'll tell you what, as soon as it became apparent, and it wasn't really even that long ago that what had happened to that officer, it was it was prominent in the news, in the Washington Post and in the other places that were the, what would you consider the primary sources on a story like that. It wasn't like they tried to just hide it and continue on with the narrative. Um, they went with the best information that they had at the time, which was from local authorities. Yeah. Yeah, I think that so it will be an uphill battle. There's so, so much distrust of the media on both sides. Um, so it'll be it'll be a challenge. It'll be interesting. But I think um, it has to be done because there needs there we do need to have a neutral source of information. That's true. But also, you can't. I, I as much as I want reporters and journalists and myself as well to redouble our efforts to be to be correct factually and to be correct in the spin that we give something. Actually, the reporter shouldn't be giving it any spin. Right. That should come from people like me. Um, I also don't want them to become so timid because someone's going to scream fake news at them that they don't do the job. They should be pointing out. If we have a president that regularly lies, they should be pointing out that mm -hmm. that's a lie. If we have a president who says without evidence that the election was stolen, the reporters ought to say... He says the election was stolen, but there's no evidence of that. And if we get to the point where we don't want our reporters to say that, then just go hire a bunch of secretaries to see what comes out of people's mouths and just write it Dictated. down with no filter. Right. What, what do you think is the biggest challenge right now facing our state? Going into... I, I, we, we talked a little bit about going into the next year's elections. And, and, and I think you're, you're, it's the, it's the, the, the differences in... In everything, well, it's 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 the differences in our income. We've got a lot of people that are comfortable and well off, and then we've got way more people. You saw it in the pandemic that are you know one paycheck away from the streets. Um, we need to figure out a way to get them better, the education, you know, educational opportunities that they need, and we need to figure out a way to get the the kind of jobs that come in that aren't. $12 an hour jobs so that they can support their families. And I think that we need to reconsider the whole tax structure in this state. We need to spend more money on things like schools, the things that will help change that. Uh, and right now, it seems like if you look at, at, at any, any graphic of income in this state and in this country, a, lot of, a few people are doing really, really well, and a whole lot of people aren't. And I think I think that's our biggest problem, and it goes into the areas of education, and it goes into the areas of people being angry with each other, and it goes into just about every area that we have. But we don't have anybody who's willing to tackle the issue because it might involve a tax increase for someone, or um, you know, we've got Pres Governor Ducey who proposed this flat tax, except it's not a flat tax. It, it yes, it reduces taxes for you know, people at the lower end of the scale by, what, an average of $39 a year, woohoo, while people at the higher end of the scale, it reduces their taxes by seven, $8,000 a year. Um, and it allows them to keep all the loopholes. So, you know, where's the flat tax if you've got a tax system with full of loopholes. I don't know if you saw the ProPublica piece this week where they got a hold of some of the tax returns of some of the wealthier people around, Jeff Bezos and all those people. Yeah. I mean, that guy Bezos is making zillions of dollars and he got $4,000 tax credits for his kids. Well, yeah. I think that, so, and, and 
maybe that's a way to have the conversation about what is taxable income. Um, the, I mean, the bottom line is that these, they didn't have it. You know, they they may have had losses because all of his wealth is in the yeah, investment. Yeah, no, but of, because because we don't ta we only tax your labor. We don't tax your your investments. Yeah, I, right. I, I get that, but, but it has created a pretty inequitable system. And I don't know to the degree that that trickles down to Arizona. But if you look at the number of people who, who are still hurting out of this pandemic, I mean, I wasn't that affected. I'm guessing neither of you were that affected in a financial way. Think of all the people who are being evicted from their houses. We've got a problem in this state, and we don't seem to want to deal with it. Well, I think we were talking. And I don't about have earlier. an answer, I, by I the think, way. <laughs> <laughs> I think the we can bill, agree that we don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> the bill coming due in terms of um, the lockdowns and the length and severity of the lockdowns, not just in Arizona but across the country, is is going to be coming due in the form of some of the things you're you're talking about: income inequality, um, drug abuse mental health issues, all these things have been exacerbated. Mm -hmm. And the kids that lost a year and, of school. And the kids right. who lost a year of school. But but um, but again, there's that inequitable issue. The kids that lost the year of school are probably the ones who were, who are uh, one income, low income houses where the, you know, the parents just weren't able to deal with this. Maybe they don't even have well, access and, to the and, internet. You and heard, then you the heard growing about, consensus is becoming the school should have never been closed. Businesses should never been closed for as long as they did. People have lost, and those. And to your point, actually, I, th I think it's a great point. Is you know, there so many of the people who lost their jobs in the service sector, or they live paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. You know, I I had this conversation with several of our elected officials saying, "Do not shut down the economy. There's things that we can do to mitigate. Don't shut." I mean, mm -hmm. people in the restaurant business. You know, in, in my former life. Knew a lot of those folks, and they are they are living paycheck to paycheck, mouth to mouth, and they are they are some of our most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Protect them, and they're slowly coming back. and And they need certainty. They need they need care. And well, this I, will I, never I, happen again. I can't imagine that it would ever happen again. But you have to go back to where we were in March of 2020, and what we knew and what we didn't know. And there was a whole lot we didn't know, and. I, you say we shouldn't have shut anything down, um, and I'd like to agree with you. Except, how many lives were perhaps saved because they did? How how many? How many lives were devastated because we? Well, did? Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Is yeah, that that's true. It's, it's, a, it's a balancing thing, but at least you can come back from that. You can't come back from the grave. But yeah. but your point is well taken. Well, and it, it, it and there was just so much. I mean, we talked about this earlier that uh, before you got here, Lori. The there's so much misinformation. There's so much non, you know, people just didn't know. Um, and then I think as we learned things, there was, there was because, and it just the whole damn thing got so freaking political because it was Trump and he had said certain things. You couldn't, if you were anyone that was on the left, you couldn't agree with that no matter whether he was right or wrong. And it really led to some Stupid things. Well, he happening. was wrong a lot. Though. Sure, he was wrong a lot. Um, Hydroxychloroquine. But, let's go the other way. Because Trump said it, we we thought it was a good thing. You had Representative Andy Biggs pushing that <laughs> stuff, saying, "Oh yeah, this is going to be a great <laughs> cure." <laughs> he actually tweeted uh, <laughs> at, at Trump when Trump announced he had COVID. Andy yeah, I mean, Biggs was saying, "Oh, you take hydroxychloroquine." Yeah, exactly. But you know. I, I, I don't understand how it became so political that, you know, and it's still political. People yell at each other if you have a mask on or they'll well, I, yell at you if you take your mask off. They, I, I really think Trump was the, 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 the issue there because, and, and the other issue is, and the reason it's still political, I think, is because people, for whatever reason, when they locked in on where they were going to be on this, even when evidence is said otherwise or things have changed, they have not changed. And, I mean, the idea that... If we have, if we're back, if we're fully vaccinated, then why are we not having a mask? Or you know, Fauci admitted well, it's become it was a virtue theater. thing. Yeah, I think yeah. to People some degree. Virtue 
And, and and on the other side too, when when they were when when this was still a raging thing, and we had one of the highest rates of spread community spread in the country, you had people carrying their Trump flags marching through places like Target, refusing to put them right. on. It's in defiance. It's the same. Right. The same problem. Why couldn't we just, as a community, come together and, as a country, say, you know, we got this big problem, and it's going to affect people whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. So let's just do these reasonable things to try to slow this down. And all of a sudden, it was like, no, if they tell you you got to wear a mask, we're going to be wearing masks for the rest of our lives, and blah blah blah. blah. No, nobody's going to do that. Nobody's even going to do that now. But I think that the medical community had the acted upon the best information they had at the time, which was crummy information, and and you evolve from there. But it just immediately became a political thing. And you're right, part of it is because it was Trump, but part of it was because Trump went out of his way to divide people on it. Why run around calling it the Wuhan virus and the Chinese virus when you know that's all that's going to do is cause people who, here who are in this country and had nothing to do with this, who are of Asian descent, it's going to put the bullseye on them. And of course, it, it did absolutely that. Why does he have to act that way? It's like he goes out of his way to be obnoxious. Well, it's, it's, well, I think think he he does. I think you hit it. It's his brand. He was acting. The guy was never the president. Well, he, he was always the, the actor. He, set the, he <laughs> sets the tone, the president. No, it, there's no question. Maybe that, someday that, we can say she sets the tone yeah, for somebody. No. But Condoleezza Rice. <laughs> or maybe Nikki Haley. I don't know. <laughs> Might be Kamala Harris. Um, yeah, I, I, there's, there should be... Uh, I, I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of all the different aspects of COVID. Like how many people actually died of COVID only, Yeah, you know? Um, well, but in some of those cases, if you had an underlying condition, it could be argued that the COVID carried you on along toward the grave a lot quicker right. than it might it was, otherwise right. have. I, I've called it the, the quickening. If you had those underlying conditions it, it, that were probably going to end your life anyway, it just sped it along. Yeah, and we we still it's don't we say, don't have any true. feel yet for the long term effects of this thing on some people. You hear about people with enlarged hearts and lung issues, and I don't think we'll know for a long time yeah. how yeah, this yeah. what the impact is going to be. I agree with that. I think most of I think here's the one thing that we can all agree on in America, and that's just that we want it to be over. Yeah. Well, that's a great <laughs> jumping off point because we can all agree on that. <laughs> we can, all agree. <laughs> we can <laughs> absolutely <laughs> agree on that. And we just appreciate you being here today and and, and, and discussing these these big issues and, and we'd love to have you back. Sure. And yeah, uh, thank you. And certainly as we get into the election season, we're gonna be having some folks on that are gonna, gonna be all over the board. It's gonna be crazy. It'll be fun. It's gonna be crazy. Gonna be I, I think it's gonna be year. particularly interesting that, to watch the legislature because because the Republicans control each each body, each chamber by one. And that's nothing. No. Yeah. You know, as is going on right now. There's one one holdout on the budget, and things that are actually one on one side and two on the other. Yeah, right. And they all want different things. Exactly. So. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> well, thank you so much, lawyer. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed this. Bye, bye, everyone. <laughs>